You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I dropped an amazing episode with Dom Grimal of The Last Felony, Ion Dissonance, and Cryptopsy. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers. Anyway, so... I happen to be the program director of a station in Boston. I thought, this song is great. I'm going to start playing it. We started playing it. Within a week, it was the most requested song. Away we went. Uh, our biggest competitor, after like two or three weeks, they started playing it. They were a chain of radio stations like our heart is today. They started Then Everybody was playing. It became not only the number one song of summer of 71, it became the number one song of the year. It was Maggie May by Rod Stewart. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Benny Goodman, and you're listening to 2020, and this week we have one of our favorite guests back, John Garabedian, the infamous, the incredibly intelligent, uh, I think he's manifesting, uh, as I think Shannon Larkin would say, but my cohort, uh, Corey Peza and Siobhan may uh, question me. What do you guys think? I think that he works... <laughs> Very hard, and he's very, he has a very pointed sense of determination. Certainly does. And manifesting <laughs> is something that we definitely talk a lot about in this episode. So if you want to stay tuned to some of Benny's uh, various side rants and some great knowledge, once again, from John Garabedi, and stay tuned. Here we are for part one. Subscribe. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'm Siobhan Cronin here, as always, with Corey Peza and Benny Goodman, and we are all of your co-hosts of the show 2020. Guys, how's it going today? It's going well. Good. <laughs> I'm here. Everyone's here, yeah. and we're back for another episode. If you haven't checked it out, go back and listen to part one and part two. But today we have back John Garabedian of the Open House Party of V66 TV station back in the day of many other projects. Amazing audio, radio host, amazing personality. We're so excited to have you back with us for parts three and four, I suppose that would be. So welcome back. It's a pleasure to be here, always with you, Siobhan. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, we're looking forward to more of the encyclopedia of rock history that we got last time. <laughs> it's actually, Corey, don't downplay. It's music history. It's music history because he, John, understand he he might put on sultans of swing one moment with dire straits but then he'll wax philosophic about cardi b in the same sentence so well i've got to say when i was in high school top 40 music was rock it was called rock and uh you know the rock back then was chuck berry and uh you know, rock around the clock bill haley and the comets and then it evolved and more pop came in and then rock split off after the stuff that came out in the late 60s that created the the era that is the classical rock era uh, emerged. What is it that you think caused the divergence between rock not being a part of top 40 anymore? Because that's interesting. You know, when even when people ask me what sort of music I play and I say oh, I play in a rock band, it really is kind of like a separate genre from what most people would hear on the radio. You don't hear rock music as as often or as in as many places as you used to. Right. And that's because the audience for it is getting older. Um, we used to live in a monoculture. We watched the same television shows. We listened to the same radio stations because there weren't that many television stations and there weren't that many radio stations. And for people who were born after 1980, growing up in a world where there were a million TV channels, more than you could ever watch and nothing any good, um, that was the world. Just like someone born in Y2K, of course we go to the moon. Of course we have rocket ships. Of course we have iPhones and the internet and, you know, all these, these uh, social media sites. Of course we do. This is normal. Well, I grew up in an era where uh, having a telephone was normal. And when the dial telephone came in, that was revolutionary. So what happened was the monoculture went away. First of all, radio back when top 40 music became the music uh, 
which was in the 50s, there was only AM radio. There were FM stations, but nobody listened to them. There was nothing on. It was classical music and eclectic stuff. Uh, in the mainstream, there were like six or seven stations. And then in the, the, the late 60s, early 70s, FM radio started to come in on its own with basically two formats. One was soft and easy, beautiful music. And the other was what we now call progressive rock, but, it, you know, rock songs by all kinds of different groups, not necessarily all the hit stuff that you hear on classic rock today. So when that started happening, audiences started splitting up. It was really album rock. And so it continued. And then you ended up with what we have today, which is all these segments of audience. And everyone has their little audience. And very few people have the mass audience. And if you try to produce something that pleases everybody, you end up pleasing nobody. Yeah. <laughs> There's a guy named Bob Lefsetz who puts out an industry blog, and he writes these big essays, and they'll come out like, you know, every other week or nothing for three weeks or three in a day. And he goes on and on and on about how musicians, um, many musicians can't understand why people aren't buying CDs anymore because that's how they made their money. Of course, it was the ultimate ripoff. Record yeah. companies had a, an artist who'd have one big radio hit and they'd pull the single. You couldn't buy the 45 or the cassette, which had the single on it back in the day, and, or a CD single, which they did have for a while. They'd make you buy the album. So you'd have to spend $17 to get one song. What a ripoff. <laughs> so, you know, on it goes. So, so now we have an era where, uh, you know, bands who do what they do build their following. And that's where they should live, with their following, and make that following as large as possible in whatever area they're in. So yeah, yeah. does that answer your question? So now we <laughs> yeah. have all these little segments and slices. I was at a wedding last night up in Vermont. I had a two and a half hour drive to get there. And there was this woman from Connecticut with her band. Um, and they did this. She was a blues singer. She was originally from Muscle Shoals, Alabama. And so this birthday party is going on at a, at a golf club in Vermont. It was supposed to be an outdoor concert, but it was drizzly and miserable. So they moved it indoors. And she did this incredible blues. And her guitar player, who used to play with Joe Cocker, and he was a studio musician and so forth, I couldn't believe how good he was. He was incredible. And, I th and then after it was all over, she's over in the corner after performing this brilliant performance, uh, selling CDs. Yeah. Well, it's a wedding, so it's a bunch of old people. So old people <laughs> still listen to CDs. I mean, I don't even have a CD player. I wouldn't know what to do with it. Right. But 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 that's how she makes money, by selling her CDs. And I thought, what a shame that an artist who is so brilliant, so talented with her band, which was tight and phenomenal, you know. That's the, that's the DIY method, though. That's a lot of artists now where you have to be everything if you want to succeed. Otherwise, you have to give away a piece of your you know, intellectual property to someone else and trust them to do it. So I think that with technology and the Internet now and you know, being able to print your own merchandise and your CDs, a lot of people are doing that now. And they're finding that you, know, you might not have the A-list celebrity stardom, but you can actually have a career you know, playing and, and selling music. There's a sliding, you know, scale necessarily on talent versus marketing because <clears throat> there's a lot of people who are super, super, super marketable who are right in the mainstream. And there's a lot of people who are probably like Eddie Van Halen in their parents' basement because they don't know how to tie their shoes and they're too like nervous to put their tongue in the electrical outlet. You know what I mean? Because being talented and being successful are definitely, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know. Oh, absolutely. Man, in the years of seeing bands that I've played with, you know, in, in the shittiest of clubs that are so good and had three people watching them and backstage pass man you yeah. guys should have gone all the uh, way we were all the way to what we were, what, we where is there to go we were no, a that's tribute band. band it was a tribute band oh. that played covers <laughs> it's not a real lucrative avenue for selling music but. i feel like we should you should do that it was really good 
<laughs> Thank you. No, but absolutely. I mean, I experience this all the time when I'm in Miami and I get one-off gigs with different bands. And there are some incredible musicians. You know, they're like really solid, great guitar players. Or I played with a trio the other day that was like, they were originally rock metal guys and then they formed a country cover band. And they're like really, really good. And yeah, just hustling every day, like five, six, sometimes seven nights a week, just different venue every day, load in, Corey's load a perfect example. Corey, I saw him playing at what was once Toby uh, <laughs> Keith's Bar and Grill, which is now like, I don't know, some other country thing or whatever. And he's with his his buddy Adam, who I love Adam. He's super talented, does like handstands in the middle of shows. But like these guys, literally, they play like Wagon Wheel and like all that sort of stuff. Corey wants to play Maiden. He does. But instead, he's playing Mr. Brightside as uh, opposed to lazy Matt LaPierre who just fucking phones it in. I'm happy but, to play any song that people want to dance to when I'm getting paid But the paid point to is, is that dance. you are an example of one of those guys who's a metal musician or who grew up listening to that, but you're totally fine because you're like, you know what? If there's 600 people at that bar and they want to sing every lyric to, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, Mr. Brightside, let them do it. You mentioned metal. Metal was one of the first genres to break off into its own thing which attracted a really large audience because um, you couldn't play it on mainstream it had it didn't have mainstream appeal yeah women were particularly into it it was very aggressive and very male and but there was a huge audience for it so from classic rock metal i don't know late 70s early 80s is where that started blowing up same time as the hair bands. <laughs> yeah. one, one thing we were just kind of going over, which was the, you know, how there's these amazingly talented people that may maybe never get anywhere. Uh, John, having so much experience with, uh, you know, artists at the top level, uh, what did you note? Like, what was it? Why, why did those people get that opportunity and that chance? Was it, was it talent meets opportunity? Like, or you know, was it someone knowing, is it more that, you know, someone who knows someone like what's, what's your experience with that? That's a good question. And I have some answers. Um, <laughs> I used to hang out with Billy Squire when nobody ever heard of him. He used to date uh, one of the DJs at WBCN, Boston classic rock station back when it was a progressive rock station it was Max and Sartori. And you know, we do things. And one night he says, Hey, there's some friends of mine are playing up at Hampton beach. And, uh, you know, I said, hold oh, we might stop by. I said, okay. So we went up there, and that's when I first met Aerosmith. And they were like, you know, 22, 23 years old, young band. Um, and make a long story short, uh, a couple of years later, after Dream On had broken and become a huge hit and broke them as a, a major artist, major act, um, I was riding in a convertible down Route 135 in Natick with a guy named Frank Connolly, who was Aerosmith's manager. We we're going out to have lunch. He wanted to thank me for what I did to contribute to the breaking Dream On and breaking Aerosmith. So wait, you broke on? You, you broke Dream On? Can we just stop there for a moment? <laughs> you broke that song? Yeah. So like, what does that mean <laughs> for people that like don't understand English? What does breaking a song mean, John? <laughs> <laughs> well, back in those days, songs came out on 45 RPM records. And um, there were albums, but there were 45s. But those were, were the singles that went to the top 40 stations. I was always a top 40 guy because I loved mainstream hit music. Not all of it, but the good stuff. And um, getting the song, the attention, so all the stations would play it was, was a trip. It was, it was very hard to do. Um, but I happened, to, I happened to see Aerosmith um, as the opening act for the New York Dolls uh, at a club, what was the club called? It was in Ashland, this, this big old house that held maybe 500, 1,000 people. And uh, well, that it was around like that really time, cool and they thing. did Dream On. And I, and, and I had the album. And so we started playing it on this little suburban Boston radio station that I built. Um, What's that station, John? called WGTR. Um, and we started playing it, and we were a reporter to Radio and Records magazine and to another thing called the Gavin Report, which was, in those days, it was, uh, I don't know if you have media bases, but every radio station today looks at media bases. It shows what everyone's playing. And and through the exposure that we gave, because the song went to number one, the label, start, Columbia Records, started paying attention to it. And they started talking to stations about it. WRKO in Boston added it. 
and so forth and so on. And all of a sudden, the RKO chain and then a blah, 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 it blew up and it became a number one song in the country. And uh, Stephen acknowledges that in their book. Um, the, the same guy wrote or wrote uh, the Led Zeppelin book. I forget. I don't know. Where was I? <laughs> no, Why so, am I talking so that's, about that, this? No, that's a great. So that's that's how you broke Aerosmith, which is incredible. Yeah. We, I mean, we, I think, we were on, cool. uh, anyway, we were saying, yeah, we were talking about uh, kind of how you see how those artists get to that A-list level. Um, the success right. formula. So, yeah. Yeah. So the answer is, the reason I went through all this to bring you is the background of what I'm about to say. Frank Connolly said, you know, the way you break a band is you got to have somebody in the band who knows how to write hit songs, the kind they play on Top 40 radio. And that's why Aerosmith blew up, because Steven Tyler is a great songwriter. Um, and he wrote all these great songs. And he and Joe Perry... Uh, you know, put together just album after album with great songs. And when you have a great song, it becomes a focal point. Mm -hmm. And radio stations all play it. People love that song. Um, the difference between radio people and musicians is radio people are looking for hits. Musicians will listen to an album and, and get something out of each song. And the musicians have no idea what a hit song is. They'll listen to their album. Every song is their little baby, and they love them all, which is why labels come in, because they'll say, no, this is the song we should be pushing, and blah, here's why, and I need you to record a two-minute and 58-second version of it. Yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah, because radio is such a big part of the, the campaign for growing a brand or growing your group, you know, and it's I've I've never really been on the forefront of the songwriting process, but it's something I hear a lot about that. It's like, all right, this is going to be our radio single, you know, and yeah. there is that it's that really is what it is. It's very song oriented. And it it does. I don't want to say it's a formula, but there there is kind of like a trend among what what sounds good on radio. Yeah, yeah. there's rules. You got to if you know, if you have a band that comes in, like if Ben or I, ben and I are in our studio and a band comes in, and they want to write a radio hit you know it's they don't think about all the other work that has to go into it but if they're just getting the song out you know and they come in with a five minute you know slow ballad the first thing we have to do is say all right well we got to cut that in half <laughs> and you know we got to get to the chorus within a minute otherwise don't you know, bore us yeah get to exactly the <laughs> so those those are they're they're real rules that they can be broken i'll, if I'll, you're, I'll tell if you you're good one but. of the best uh one of the best like real-time feedback things that my my buddy um, we had him on the show, Dan Hartwell, who used to do local bazooka, said to me, um, he said, Betty, I'll help you get a record contract. I'll make a, co I promise you I'll get you a record contract, but here's the deal. And he made, he, he did a fax copy, a facsimile copy of this, this contract that he made. You must write 10 songs with the hit first. And then he, he put on, um, I think it was, uh, cold as ice. He goes, you hear this? Dun, 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 dun. You know what that's called? It's called a hook. He goes, it's not even the song yet. It's as cold as ice. Like, this isn't the chorus. This isn't anything. This is just a hook. He goes, you know what this is now? The second hook. You know what this is? The third hook. He goes, that's how you should write songs. And if you write 10 songs with the hook first, you'll actually get signed. And he was right. Yes. But <clears throat> unfortunately, you can't sit down and write a hit. Because that becomes formula. And I have heard so many times from so many artists, and I'm talking dozens, how did the song get written? They said, well, we finished the album, and somebody said, you know, that da 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 you got to go back and do something else. So they went back in and they did something else, and boom, that was the hit. Or it was the B-side of the 45. And some of the biggest hits that we all remember were, the, were not the side they were working. It's the other side. So give us an example, because I don't know what you mean by that. So, like, you got a song. They're supposed to play A. You're supposed to play side A. What was on side B? What what, well, what did you get sent? Well, one of my other experiences was um, in 1971, Rod Stewart came out with an album called Every Picture Tells a Story. And the single that came out of it that the label Mercury Records was pushing was Reason to Believe. With that Rod Stewart voice. <laughs> and I had played the album at home and was listening to it, and friends of mine come over. And everyone likes side one, cut one. This thing that started out with a 30 second mandolin solo and then paused, and then in came this doing, doing thing. And it was a five minute song, which for radio is like unheard of. You want three minutes, three and a half minutes. Anyway, so 
I happened to be the program director of a station in Boston. I thought, this song is great. I'm going to start playing it. We started playing it. Within a week, it was the most requested song. Away we went. Uh, our biggest competitor, after like two or three weeks, they started playing it. They were a chain of radio stations like our heart is today. They started, then everybody was playing. It became not only the number one song of summer of 71, it became the number one song of the year. It was Maggie May by Rod Stewart. But Never Reason to Believe was the single they were working, not Maggie May. Well, you know what's funny is that Siobhan actually played with Rod Stewart. I did, yeah. And he actually said to her, What did his wife more. think? <laughs> oh, he had a whole band of, of you know, attractive women wearing all sorts of sequins and but yeah that was the joke was i i asked him i said well what should i wear to the shows and he said oh less is more <laughs> and then walked out like a true rock star yeah. but that's but speaking of rod stewart you know i think one thing aside from writing a hit song there has to be a personality behind the the artist or the band or whatever the concept is so i feel like there that's also must be a requirement don't you think that it's not just the ability to write great songs, but there's got to be some sort of like strong persona that's sort of leading, correct? Well, uh, yeah. now you're coming into another whole area. Okay. Today, you know, what is, if you have a hit song today, that means that you can sell tickets. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean you're going to make money with the record because nobody does that anymore which is why today on the hit songs, you hear all these major artists with some nothing artists, because what they're trying to do, the nothing artist is the breakthrough young artist with a great song that everyone knows is going to be hit. So they throw Justin Bieber on it and they go, this is going to help you because Justin Bieber's on it. Well, it's going to help Justin Bieber too, because he gets more exposure all the time. So when he goes on tour, he can sell those $900 tickets. So, the business of making money with music today is selling tickets. It's not selling, you know, downloads or streams. Streams sure. are nice, but wait, I thought I was selling CDs. I, did I miss something? I thought you cars don't even come uh, with CD players anymore. Think, it's, like not, it's a way of the past. Did I miss something? You get seventeen dollars for one song. Isn't that like the greatest gross margin thing ever? Or am I? Wait, well, is that Betamax or is that Dat? Well, that's the difference between having a record company get the $17 and you getting the $17. Cause if you get the $17, you keep it. The what happens if it comes in Bitcoin, John, what do you do when it's Bitcoin? How do you even get it out? Like I can't even put my change in the machine at the supermarket to get dollars. How do I get the Bitcoin out of the computer? Well, you sell the Bitcoins. <laughs> I don't know what that is. <laughs> Irrelevant means. question. We yes. can move on from that. <laughs> <Yeah>. Erroneous. <laughs> But yeah, more so, I mean, to, to Siobhan's point, um, I think it is true now that, you know, any any of these people that are, you know, getting that flash in the pan of attention, it, they have this, they, it's not just the music anymore. There's got to be some sort of story around them, it seems, or, you know, they have Netflix to, special, a, a lot, a lot, yeah, special, or a lot of them can't come from either reality TV show or that now they're like TikTok influencers and all of a sudden they're pop stars. So it, it's got to be pretty hard to stand out from the crowd now that there's so many like uh, just singles coming out I, I follow a few producers on instagram that have really crazy credits and they have new songs out all the time and i i've never heard of the artist's name i click on their profile and it's like 47 million followers and they're like yeah. going platinum i'm like i've never even heard of these people what's going on oh look at someone like kanye west who uh you know, he's how much he's supposed to be worth, like three or four hundred million dollars. He didn't make that you know, selling CDs. He didn't make it with downloads. He made it selling shoes and jackets and <laughs> well, Khloe like, Kardashian's yeah. a billionaire selling perfume and women's, you know, Well, makeup. it's like David, David Geffen. Didn't he make like like five hundred million dollars in the music industry and then like two billion selling art? You know, really? Um, you, oh, you didn't know that? Yeah. So no. David Geffen, you know, uh, behind Geffen Records, never mind uh, Nirvana era. He bought Sub Pop, he Guns N' Roses during the Use Your Illusion, like all that stuff. Like that golden era of you know the the now classic rock was David Geffen. But when he kind of cashed out, he started getting into art, and he basically quadrupled his money buying Picassos and Monets. So this comes down to the rhetorical question. What is the meaning of your life? What are you trying to achieve? Is it money? 
Is it fame? Is it power? Is it recognition for a talent? What is the important thing yes. that you spend your time in life doing that you're trying to get somewhere? It really comes to that. That's true. I mean, I think that's a, a question that a lot of artists probably haven't answered yet. And it's probably important to answer that. I, I figured out something important about that, John. You're still right because I believe very much in manifestation, in, like the universe. And, and, and it's very important because, you know, one of the things they always tell you is that if you write it down, there's a 50% better chance of it happening. But I found that if you actually want exact things to happen, you figure out. Um, you know, our friend Scott, who's behind this whole thing, um, obsesses over things, but he obsesses over them so much that he, he pretty much makes them happen. And, you know, our friend Shannon Larkin from Godsmack, he thinks about things so much that he makes them happen. And I feel like if you actually know the parameters that you're working on, like, because it's like, what is success for you? You go, I want to be famous. What does that even mean? Does that mean you can sell out 1,000 seats, 10,000 seats? So like, if you know definitively your exact path. That's how you manifest it. It's just literally being able to write down. So when, when someone like you, John, says, what do you want? You can be like, here's exactly what I want. I want a turkey sandwich right now from Shaw's with a little bit of mayo cut diagonally. And that's all I need. And I'm going to go to bed. What does that, what does manifest mean? Like, <laughs> you still have you to don't know do, what it means? You have to actually do stuff. We can't just write something down and then something happens. <laughs> No, I mean that you actually have to like know exactly what you're what you're striving for and know every little step of the way because there's so a lot of the times people are looking work. are are working towards intangibles though. Saying yeah. they want to be famous or their band wants to be big. They're like yeah. undefined pronouns. What is a band being big? If you say, "Hey, I want to be on the front of Rolling Stone." That's a much more tangible thing because you start putting it out to the world by telling people and the right, more you say Right, but this is it, this is interesting though cuz going back to the story of a lot of the hit songs being the B-sides or the non-chosen song, like you know, l let's say a lot of these people go in and they're not, you know, they they want to be successful, but they're writing a whole bunch of songs that don't even turn out to be the hit song. You Are know, you the B-side of Star Set, do you think? <laughs> well, no, but I'm saying, you know, it's it's interesting because artists and musicians have such a different perspective from people that work in the industry. So how do you even go about that? That's part of the, the division there is like, you know, you can't necessarily just go in and say, okay, I'm going to write a hit song today and I'm going to be famous today. It's a lot. There's a lot of other things that, that can happen accidentally that lead into that. Well, why don't we do a case study on someone like, like Prince? What do you what what happened with Prince was 19 years old when he had his first hit, which was uh, oh god, was it? I forget what it was. It wasn't Dirty Mind. It wasn't. Uh, well, what was it's it? Not, I would die for you. Was it? Uh, oh no, it was before that. Okay. Where's my phone? Anyway, yeah, we can look it up. But here's here's this this short uh, kid from Minneapolis who grew up who was attracted to the guitar and became a brilliant songwriter, a brilliant musician, and achieved the, basically the Super Bowl. I mean, that's as high as you can get in recognition before an audience, and blew people away. But what was his motivation? <clears throat> you know, how did he get to where he was? What did he want? Self-hatred. I feel like he really, really was insecure, so hyper insecure that he would never release anything and that he was always such a perfectionist that he was so much of a perfectionist that it literally made him neurotic to the point where he like was like bordering on spectrum, except where most people spectrum like no numbers. Prince knew how to play like Jimi Hendrix and could dance in eight inch platforms. Like, he, I mean, if you watch him, he's a brilliant. He, for me, he's the greatest of all time, all around MVP entertainer not even just musician because people say <clears throat> michael jackson for example but michael mm -hmm. jackson wasn't a songwriter like prince was prince threw away more songs well, than michael jackson even could comprehend and that's the thing that was crazy and prince was so true to himself he was he's the kind of guy that would have a documentary made on himself and then just put it back in his own vault for no one to watch like that's how weird he was and the fact that he was just and he could go play the piano for three hours and it would be just as good as being seeing an 18-piece band with all the, the women because he was just so good at what he did and it didn't matter if he played the saxophone or the drums or the guitars. Like It's it's crazy to me. And the funny part is he was so nuts as a person that he could call the record label two days before they're going to release, let's say, the Black Album and say, I don't want to release it. I had a bad dream. And then they didn't. You remember that, John? I don't know. He was, he was an entertainer, though. Um, he did a show at the Worcester Centrum one night. And he was staying at the Marriott Hotel down the street. And a couple hours after the concert, he came down to the lobby 
sat at the piano and entertained everybody for an hour and a half. This is after you know, a stadium sold out show. And that's an entertainer. His motivation was, you know, to amaze people. I, I mean, I'm trying to, yeah. you know, what was his motivation? Why did he do what he did? Yeah, that's interesting. Well, that, that's proof of the point. Yeah, I mean, obviously entertaining is what he was driven by. But I, I suppose for each person, it's different. That's interesting. Yeah. And you look yeah. at other people. I mean, Justin Bieber, you know, he, uh, you know, he was the kid and they swept him out and said, you want to do this? And I don't think he's very comfortable with his fame. I don't think he's, you know, that big on doing shows, but he does. It makes him a lot of money. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's kind of crazy that, that especially in, in his case where it was, he, he was what discovered on YouTube or something and then essentially yeah. thrown into a position that no one else in the world has ever been in and expected to deal with that normally. And then now that he's, kind of older i don't i don't follow him too closely but he seems like he's kind of you know looking back well, how on, do you his, expect on, his, someone... on his he's looking back and kind of developing as a person and doing but other we've things seen now this. watch danny bonaducci watch all those child stars like there's no like when you have that level of fame i mean because like justin bieber is like a johnny depp level of fame i mean like usher like who's the guy that discovered him he was discovered by usher people forget that because he's bigger than usher he's bigger than usher so it's like one of those things where it's like, yeah, like you hear about like how he used to like tell people off and like drive a Porsche uh, Carrera GT and was like smoking weed and all. Like, that's what I do. So I'm his, 17 you know, and millions. Yeah. And then so basically his motivation was probably what he thought it should be at the time. You know, back mm -hmm. to our topic at hand, which you is know, like, like Miley Cyrus getting naked and being weird. Like that was just a thing <laughs> that, you know, because she had a ton of money and maybe someone thought that was a good idea on, co on cocaine. Well, I think the common thread yeah. among all of these superstars is that they all are great entertainers. And that's kind of what I was saying, you know, earlier is, yeah, you have to write hit songs. But at the same point, if your motivation is to sell tickets and that's how you're going to make money, you have to give a show, you know, so it's not enough just to provide a great album or a great song. Like you have Star to have Set? To give. Well, yeah, I mean, Star Star Set's an example in the rock world. But I mean, all of the top 40 pop, you know all these people that we've talked about in the last 20 minutes it's they're all great entertainers and they put on great shows you know so there's well, what's the difference be between joe walsh and eddie van halen joe walsh never really had a band where there was a front man until they pulled him into the eagles when they needed a guitar player later on um eddie van halen had david lee roth who was the entertainer so Eddie could be quiet and be there and do his amazing, you know, flourishes and what he does. Yeah, the dynamic certainly made all the difference with that. But that's something, it's actually interesting. Are there any other acts that you can think of, John, nowadays that have like the, that kind of dynamic that, that was so big in like the, the 70s and 80s, especially like the Slash and Axel type oh, of thing? Like I've, immediately I come Bruno Mars. Who's, Bruno Mars is one of the greatest entertainers of our time. But who's who's his slash? That's what I'm, I'm saying. Like the, the duo dynamic, the two artists together that, that create the image of the of, Bono Edge. Yeah, it seems like now there's the singular star that that's mm -hmm. almost universal. Or you bring in, in a star level. and you put Justin Bieber with other stars yeah. because he's like you know he's the Ja Rule. But then you have Minaj the two like alpha personalities, like it, like he was saying with Eddie. Uh, and David, it was it was the the difference. Steven Tyler, Joe Perry from Aerosmith. Yeah, that's the same era, though. I'm saying nowadays. Right, no, I know, currently. but I'm saying yeah. to what a duo, a, a duo, a duo as opposed to one single artist. Yeah, yeah. In terms of the the branding or image of an, a band that has the loud voice and then this more subdued support, I guess that that kind of like makes it that kind of special. I don't think there's a lot of that right now at all. I can't no. think of anything. No. That faded uh, the uh, 80s, I guess. Well, the, the singer-songwriter, you know, the artist who writes the songs, and uh, that's just yep. about gone. I mean, yeah. who's around who does that? Every song is written by nine people. Yeah. And <laughs> <laughs> a writer camp. <laughs> yeah, they're all, and it's all produced by Max Martin. Yep. <laughs> or now now is it uh, Louis Bell? He's doing all the, the Post and the, the Bieber and the Ozzy. Like, he's, yeah. he's taking Max's spot. But yeah, the funny thing now is the the, the, the blend of uh, Bono and U2 with, uh, what's his name, Martin Jarrix, who they have a new song out. It's the song of the uh, world, uh, the FIFA Cup. Uh, yeah, see, oh. like that's probably heard by millions of people. And like, I would never know that that existed ever. 
So, so wait, we, so we are the two, people. It's called. We are the people. Is you two and Martin Garrix? Yeah. And every time I hear it, I can't tell if they're talking about the the people or if they're talking about Trumpers because it's like <laughs> you know we are the people. <laughs> well, who's waving that flag? The good guys or the bad guys? Well, maybe it was meant to be ambiguous. Who knows? Yeah. I mean, well, Conor McGregor is the guy representing Ireland right now. So, I mean, if he's waving a, an American flag, I don't know if I want Ireland waving my American flag. I'm, I'm an American. You're an Irish person. Maybe you should talk about Amnesty International. You know, that sounds like a better thing for Bono to be talking about. <laughs> Doesn't it? Like, I feel like he should be going and talking to the Pope and like talking about reform for Catholicism. I don't know. We don't have to get into Catholicism on this episode. No, I didn't know we should bullet the blue sky. (laughs) Or maybe it's a Sunday bloody Sunday. But when it comes to Bono, you've got to say, what's he done lately? I mean, how much passion passion does he have for what he used to be passionate about? You know, how how much can you squeeze out of that? Have I told you lately by Rod Stewart a B-side? I don't know. By that time, he would become mom's favorite artist. Mom music is not anything that... Yeah, it's like corny and <laughs> I lost him when he did Do You Think I'm Sexy? Oh, it's so funny and everyone loves that when <laughs> did he you gets not around to think he was it. sexy? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I kinda like Do I gotta be real with I'm you. Sexy. I I like really, really drunk Rod Stewart, like old Rod Stewart. Back when like people were like Elton John didn't want to go near him because he was just too much of a drinker. I feel like that's when Rod Stewart was like legit, and then he came out with all those. But all the girls told him he was pretty. That's when he came out with those silly records. Well, anyway, to get back to John, I want to ask you. You know, what are maybe we can talk about some of the artists or groups that are interesting you. You know, right now because obviously in our earlier episodes, for anyone that hasn't heard, go back and check them out. Two zero two zero dash d dot com. We did part one and part two with John. Um, talked a lot about some of the artists he's worked with, and um, you know, some great stories about people and how they rose to their fame. So, is there is there anyone that you're interacting with now or listening to that that's kind of piquing your interest? as a musician or an artist? Well, if it's, it's all rock people watching this, I'm not sure they know who Olivia Rodrigo is. What? No, how, no, how come anyone, you're, you're putting anyone. us in a box? There's people, my mom doesn't listen to rock and she watches this show. Oh, okay. Well, Olivia Rodrigo is a Disney artist. She's, I think she's 17. Maybe she just turned 18. She's a phenomenal singer. Phenomenal. She had one of the biggest songs of the past year called Driver's License. And she didn't even have oh, a driver's I think I license. Heard this. Oh, I yeah. remember that song. Yeah. Yeah. And it was very well produced. And her singing is brilliant. She did it on SNL. And until then, I just thought, oh, it's another pop, you know, piece of pop, you know, here today, gone tonight. But the, the emotion she poured into that and the, the performance was brilliant. She now has three of the top most played songs on Spotify. Top 10. Wow. Three of the top 10. Yeah, she has that one now that's basically Paramore from like 2007. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. John John knows. Well, listen, because I, 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 what was yeah. it? Wasn't it you, Siobhan, who said, uh, or no, it was Richard Shaw we were talking to, John, that said that one of his professors at university, so you know it's very high class, um, said that if they were actually writing original music, that you wouldn't recognize it as music if it was truly original. And that everything is already done and it's been done. And I guess, you know, you're saying don't follow trends. So how do you be original in your own way, but also acknowledge the fact that you are playing the same three chords that Tom Petty wrote to the bank for years? I don't know. <laughs> the answer is I don't know. I've lived through <clears throat> music going from uh, you know, corny old pop songs in the early 50s to rock and roll emerging in the late 50s to the 60s when you had the British invasion, which was a bunch of Britain, British artists doing their version of American blues, such as the Beatles, who stole all that. Didn't you see the Beatles live? Didn't rubber you? Soul. Yeah, I, I've I, seen them live. I think I saw a picture of you in front of the stage. Did I not when they came to Boston? Yeah, Suffolk Downs. What was that like? It was you couldn't hear a thing because all the girls are screaming. <laughs> so back then, so so tell us because I know you are a complete I don't want to call you a nerd, but like you know more about like sound and audio like what a lot of people don't realize is not only are you 
an incredible DJ, but like you're an engineer, like you understand science, you've built radio towers, you fly planes, you understand technology. In fact, you're the one that told me to get a Roku. You're like, Cable, pshaw, that's for oh, that's, well, that's for Luddites. That's consumer advice. That's, that's not you know, Roku. No, no, but I'm just saying, like, <laughs> you don't know, have a guy that could, you know, be is substantially older than me telling, you know, me and my young fiance, like, this is what you should do to watch your television streaming because that's the way of the future. Yeah, cut but, the cable. Yeah. Yeah, but the thing is, so what I'm saying is, is that, you know, you really understand technology, John. So, like, how important do you feel like now that everybody has technology at their fingers? You can't blame going into a recording studio and not getting the sound because Billie Eilish made it in her bedroom. What are we limited by now? Creativity, the human thing. It's always been the human thing. It's creativity. It's talent. It's the ability to come up with something that just connects. It's like... You know, Mozart, how old was he when he started playing the piano and the harpsichord and and, and a lifetime was just creating. He was definitely music. watching Asians in, on YouTube <laughs> at four. There's no way he was playing <laughs> that song at seven, John. There's no way. He totally was like had a tiger mom. We all know that about. Did you not see Amadeus? That's that's how it went down. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it still created a genius. It still molded him into what he the best he could be. Well, he's a savant. He was a savant. I mean, that's an example. I mean, and maybe Eddie Van Halen was as well. You know, there's there's a few of them that were in our time. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, I I saw Eddie Van Halen, and he was just he was on it. You know, you get hear about a guy like Neil Peart. You know, he's moved people in a way where you got to say maybe he is a different level. You know what I mean? And I I just think that some of those guys are just a different level. And we're lucky to be around them. Like a guy like Mozart. You know, the fact that he really wrote like. Even Schubert, for example, we we cover a song with Lost Symphony, our sponsor, uh, "Fantasy for Four Hands," which apparently I found out was Schubert's first song was a, a dueling piano piece. Which, by the way, they I don't think they found it until he was dead from syphilis on his floor um, in his apartment. They found like notes, and then they're like, "Oh wow, this is good music!" Like because they didn't even listen to it then; they had to actually read the music, and someone had to play it. But his first song was "Fantasy for Four Hands," and that song I can't even play it if I practice for fifty years. No so way. So in his mind, he visualized that song, conceptualized it. it right. That, but that's genius, and that's what that's what it takes, and you can't. Make that. You can't say, well, I want to be a genius. I have a, I have a, a nephew uh, who's an old guy. He's not a kid. But he always wanted to be an inventor, and he read books on how to be an inventor. You can't read a book on how to be an inventor. You have to be an inventor. It's either Don't tell you Mark Cuban that. Well, what did he invent? <laughs> Broadcast.com, which was the biggest... <laughs> Uh, unload this on the poor Yahoo who paid uh, what five billion dollars to him, and then five years later it was shut it down. You know what? I just like him on Shark Tank. So, oh, you know he's, what? Nice, he's a nice guy. Very no, nice well, guy. listen, I'm sure he is, but that's a perfect example. People know Mark Cuban now, not more because of his billions of dollars, but because he's like on television telling business acumen when you just joked around about his terrible business acumen. Well, no, I didn't say it was terrible. It was very lucrative for him. But he had this idea, and he created it, and it could have been something. Could have been. It's, it could have been. But what he was doing was aggregating radio stations and giving you what basically iHeart Radio is today. Right. So does that make him revolutionary? Was he ahead of his time, do you think, with this concept? Um, like, why didn't it work? He sold it too early? <laughs> Can you smell that? <laughs> Is that coming through? That the was things? very realistic yes, reaction. Yes, it's yeah. coming out of the keyboard. I'm so disillusioned yeah. by all of his weed smoking that it was. Smoke is permeating. <laughs> I mean, John sees it in person. I mean, come on. Yeah. <clears throat> there was so, a question in there, but Corey, we'll just throw it back to you. You know, I guess to it, Ben's all over the place today. So let's right. just see where we landed here. Talking about Mark Cuban, maybe not having, you know, that one situation work out obviously he's incredibly successful john you've had it seems like a million ventures in your life you've you've built radio stations tv stations you've written books um why don't we kind of get back to you a little bit and uh can you tell us one of the bigger challenges of something you tried to tackle uh throughout your career 
that, you know, maybe you put a lot into and just never quite made it over that threshold? Sure. A couple of them. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I, I was always motivated by what I, something I'm, I'm passionate about. And I was always passionate about radio. I was always passionate about really well done radio. I just, I, to me, it was an art form who was done really well. And in most cases, it wasn't. And today it's just horrible what's, what's happened to it. There's really nothing on music radio that's any good. It's, it's all trash. It's just very formulaic and mail it in. There's no exciting creativity, which there was 20 years ago. There was 30 years ago. Very good examples of it back then. And the talent has left. Um, uh, just to add one more thing, which I thought to do with getting to where you want to go is, you know, the, the uh, excitement about radio is gone because there's nothing exciting about it to excite young people to get into it. There are many more exciting things to get into today because of what IP has brought us and uh, IT and IP both. So what motivated me back then was, was exciting radio. So as a young disc jockey, when I became a disc jockey, where I got paid for it, aside from high school dances, which I did starting when I was 14, um, when I was 17. And when I was, I worked at some different radio stations. And by the time I was 21 or 22, I was at this 50,000 watt, uh, huge radio station in uh, Albany, Troy, Schenectady, New York, the capital district. Uh, and we covered, you know, five states. We got into five provinces of Canada. Um, I was on the air from nine to midnight, which is the period after dark when AM 50,000 watt signals went for hundreds of miles. Um, and I was not happy because the station had a very tight format of when the song ended, you said this, and then you said that, and then you read this little index card with a slogan, and then you hit the next song. And it was just, boring to me. It wasn't the kind of radio that I thought was great or loved. And I thought, if I want to do that kind of radio, I have to be the program director. And then I thought, well, that mustn't be good enough because the general manager is going to want things done a certain way. And he might bring in a, a, a consultant to help set the thing up. And they like to systemize everything beyond belief. So I thought the only way I can do that kind of radio is to own the radio station. So I figured, how can I own a radio station? I didn't have a pot to piss in. Um, but that I did have my engineering talent. So I started studying the FCC rules and how you get a license for a radio station. And I figured a way that I could, uh, I figured a way to get a radio station license in the Boston area, which is where I wanted to return to because I love Boston. And which I didn't, really realized until I went to college in Miami and realized that Boston was really a cool place. <laughs> so I, I, so I went looking for a partner to put up the money because back then the FCC required you have enough money to build a station, run it for three months with no income. Hmm. And I didn't have that kind of money. So I found a partner, uh, a guy to put up the money and, um, and we applied to the FCC and that was, that was year one. I did all the engineering applications, did the engineering study, did this, put that together, the business plan, the blah, blah, blah. We filed the application in September. The FCC processed it, processed it and assigned a date in May, May 5th of 1965, when after which nobody could file a competing application. On the last day, in came a group of eight people, four young guys who did all the work and four rich guys who put up all the money. Well, we didn't have all the money. We had one guy yeah. who had some money uh, and he freaked out. Anyway, the story goes on. After eight years, hearings before the FCC and a quarter million dollars in 1960s money and legal fees, which today would be wow. a couple million dollars, we won the license. Wow. But it took eight years to get it. And we built the station, put it on the air, and away we went. We were profitable 
from from the second month we were on the air, and, and it worked out quite was well. Was there ever a point where you thought, you know what, this isn't worth it? Yeah, because nobody was going to hire me because they all knew that I had this thing coming, and they and we're not going to hire somebody who's going to quit in a year. So I had trouble getting a job. I mean, it was it was a tough eight years, but it all worked out in the end, sort of. Um, but as far as losing things, um, MTV went on the air in 1982. And uh, it was a guy named Steve, uh, forget his name. He was the guy who ran Time Warner. And they owned Time Warner, Warner Cable. And they were looking for stuff to put on their cable network to sell subscriptions. Why do I want to pay for cable TV? I get all the stations on my rabbit ears. Mm-hmm. CNN had started. Ted Turner started TBS. And this guy, uh, Steve, oh, what was his name? Anyway, he came up with the idea of these videos that the record companies had to promote their artists, which they could get free. Was it Steve Ross? And Steve Ross, that's his name, yes. Um, Steve Ross, he hired Bob Pittman, this young programmer from New York, who put together a plan for how it would work. And they created MTV, which was a music video stage. So all of a sudden, young people have a reason. They want this channel. They want cable so they can watch this channel. And MTV became a hit. Well, back about five years before that, I was bored with this radio station in suburban Boston. I thought, what else can we do? I found a frequency for a TV station. And we applied for it. And we were given a construction permit but we had to get it built by a certain time. How can I shorten the story? (laughs) So in 1964, we went to Wall Street. We got an investment bank to underwrite our thing and put up the money to build this new television station in Boston, the most powerful station in the market, three and a half million watts. Uh, And we were going to be a 24-hour music video station. But we were going to be much better than MTV. First of all, we were going to be over the air. We got into every home. Uh, My business partner, a guy named Arnie Ginsberg, was well known as a disc jockey by all the people back then. And he went around to all the cable companies, got us excellent positions on all the cable systems. So we reached everybody. And we put the station on. And our idea was that MTV was boring. It was four VJs. From a, they just come on between the videos. Well, here's another video. Well, we had live broadcasts. We had live from the Palace nightclub. We had all this stuff going on in the streets. Plus, we had local Boston bands on, which back then there was a rich Boston music culture with a lot of bands. This is the mid-'80s. And the ratings came out, and we found out that everybody was watching us but they weren't staying on our channel for very long because every four minutes we were, we had a new reason to tune out on the radio. You'll learn this. You play a song. The next song better be something that's going to hold the people in the song before it and the song after that and so forth. Well, with television, you have an hour show or a half hour show. It's sticky. You get the beginning of it. They suck you in. You've got to watch the story. How's this going to work out? Or you watch a sports event, you want to see who wins, blah, 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 blah. We didn't have that. And we did focus groups, and we found out that was the problem. We had to have programs. Hmm. So we realized we, if we didn't have programs, we weren't going to get the ratings. If we didn't have the ratings, we weren't going to get the advertisers. We weren't going to get the kind of money to, to make a profit and pay back the investors the money they put in. So at that point, we had a choice of either – Going back to the investors and raising more money to get programs, which were much more expensive than what we were doing, or we could sell the place and still make a lot of money. <laughs> and the practical thing to do was sell the place. <laughs> People invested in it, yeah. and we had a we had a hundred how many investors? One hundred and uh, one hundred and twenty or one hundred and thirty investors. They didn't invest in it because they wanted to watch television. They invested it because they wanted the money they put in to come back is more money. Yeah, yeah. So that's what we did. And we made 156% on our money. Wow. 
But if we'd gone the other way, we could have just gone down a deep pit. We would have had to go back, ask for money. They won't. Yeah. They don't trust us anymore because we changed the thing. So obviously, now, it's sorry. Continue. Go ahead. No, that's that. I was going to say. So it it seems like that was the right choice, but having put so much into it, you'd gone around, did all the work to build the the TV, TV station. station. You know, was did it feel like your baby that you were giving up, or was it no more? No, okay. I'll, I'll, yeah. because once we got it on the air, we're running it. It was fun. We had a great time, and I love projects. I love building things. And da da da. The first day of broadcast, the staff we put together, they were great people. Um, the saddest thing was telling them that we were letting them go when we had to sell the place. Um, but it was the right time and the right thing to do because when you run a television station, it's not like you're in there having fun. It's you're in the front office dealing with everybody's biggest problems, yep. including your own. Yeah. So it, it was time to go. So that was great. That's, um, that's good. But then the really, other huh? Go ahead. I was going to say, do you really think that video killed the radio star? Because it sounds to me like you did video and then went to radio. Well, I did radio for 25 years before I did the video. So, but you went and got your radio, the radio station after that. So, I mean, I mean, you, you took the radio by the, by the horns because didn't you say you had to own a radio station to really do what you want? So you were on radio, right. but not on your own terms. So I right. mean, on your own terms. And that worked out well too, but the television station was the next step along the way. And then when that was done, it was like, what am I going to do next? And then ahead of all the things I love doing, it's, uh, what, did you drop your contact lenses? No, you're wearing glasses. Oh. <laughs> you dropped his pipe. <laughs> no, that's over here. It was my cat. Oh, the cat. You dropped the cat? No, I didn't drop the cat. It was just vacant. Well, listen, a little pussy never hurt anyone. <laughs> so, um, so the next chapter was, was doing radio, and I thought, well, you know, radio on the weekend really sucks. And uh, I was approached by the program director of a station in Boston, Kiss 108, who asked me if I was interested in doing a weekend show on Kiss. I said, what do you need me for? He said, well, he said, he said, I can't get anybody good on the weekends. He said, and the ratings show it. He said, we do great during the week, but we take a big dip on the weekend. So I said, well, I've got an idea. So I got together with him and I said, I have this idea for a Saturday night show, a big blowout that will be the centerpiece of your weekend. Uh, we have the biggest stars. We have people calling in on the phones, a live studio audience, and hosted by a superstar, DJ, me. <laughs> so I created this show called Open House Party. And uh, we took off, and we were up to about 100 affiliates uh, in the first two years, including all over Canada. We were on a bunch of stations up there. And all of a sudden, the economy hit this shitter. And all the radio stations who had been financed by debt were in big trouble. They weren't able to service their debt. So one by one, they started changing their format. They started doing everything. And we lost, our, we lost station after station. And we went down to about 37 stations. And we were losing money. So what do you do then? Well, I believed in this thing. And now we're talk we talk about passion, which is what comes out of the musician. So we stuck it out and eventually built it back up again. And we got up to 175 stations. We were in almost every major market. Uh, the thing did great. And in uh, realizing that uh, time, everything has a beginning, middle and end, I ended up selling the company. We, we added other products, other programming. Uh, we, were, we had 800 affiliates with 40 different shows we were doing. And uh, and I made I made a good buck by selling it. But in the meantime, I also believed in the video idea, and reality TV was coming in. It was really big, so I had this idea for a reality TV channel, a cable channel with reality, and we MTV? started that. No, that was, we already went through that. I was Remember? joking because MTV literally is like all reality shows because the people that were born in Generation Z or X, whatever, all they've seen is the real world or or uh, Jersey Shore. They don't realize that you, there actually was an MTV buzz clips. Well, it wasn't just MTV. Reality TV was everywhere. Remember Big Brother? In fact, Big Brother is still around. Um, you know, there was a lot, it was all, re reality TV became the thing. MTV did it well with their... Uh, 
What was that show? The Real World. The Real World? Real World, yeah. They did a great yeah. show. That was a great show. <clears throat> that was the point where MTV had realized suddenly after being on the air for eight years, they had to do programs, not just videos. And that was around 1989 when, um, what was the show where they had the people sit in the chair and they didn't answer right? Oh, you, uh, you can't oh, do that on television? Know. Yeah. Yeah, you can't do that on television, right? On Nick, That was on Nickelodeon. And they'd slime No, you? no, no. This was on MTV. Oh, it was a MTV. quiz show. Oh, man. I don't, I don't think I know that They one. sat in a big chair, and if you answered wrong, the chair would just dump you into the... The chair would just literally fold over, and you'd oh, fall man. down. That might be before my time. Yeah, I was, well... I was two. So. Anyway, <laughs> so reality con- TV. So we created this reality remote TV control? channel. Remote control. That's it. Oh, there Thank we go. Thank you, Google. Okay. MTV chair show. That's what I searched. Corey, you're really good. <laughs> Thanks. Corey, you would have been something in terrestrial radio. I know, right? I tried that. Wasn't a fan. So we started pouring money into this thing and uh, building it up. And we started getting on cable systems. And uh, one by one, we added cable systems. Charter was a bitch because they're very, very tight and, and uh, very hard to get on cable. Charter. I mean, uh, Comcast. Uh, but we made a lot of trips to Philadelphia, and uh, we thought we were getting somewhere. Uh, DirecTV, Dish Network, we were meeting with them. They were, we looked pretty good for Dish. Uh, at the time, Verizon was coming up with their Fios TV. We were all set to be on every Fios channel. We were on uh, Charter. We were on RCS. We were on uh, Time Warner. Anyway, make a long story short. We weren't making money, and we had to to get to the next step. We had to raise twenty five million dollars. Uh, and meanwhile, I'd been funding the whole thing myself out of the money I made selling the radio network that I built up with my radio show, and it was a lot of money, six figures every single month, um, big six figures, not low six figures, big six figures. So, make a long story short, um, and and wrap it up to talk about failures. Um, We went to all the venture capitalists. We went to New York. We went, we met with all these people. What we found out was we were too late. We were too late, even though at the time MTV got the highest fee per subscriber of any cable network because the 12 to 24, 18 to 24 demographic was so hard to reach for advertisers. So they charged a premium for it. And that's where we would have been if we had been able to continue. But all the venture capitalists had been hit by everybody else with their idea for a TV channel, the golf channel, the tennis channel, the puppy channel, the the kitty channel. It was on and on and on. There were all these channels. And, you know, some of them were successful. Some of them weren't. Most of them weren't. So we had to live with that shadow. And uh, and as a result, the day came where we could keep going and I could end up, you know, going to work sweeping floors someday, or we could cut the rope, which we had to do. So we did. And uh, to a cost of a loss of millions and millions of dollars. But it was a nice try. And it yeah. was fun to do. <laughs> and it, it's important to note that 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 wasn't the end of your career. You didn't oh, decide. No, to, no. You didn't just throw it in, throw in the towel. So actually, as we wrap up this hour, our first part one uh, with John Garabedian. Thank you for joining us. Our um, second part one. Our second, second uh, part, part one. Part one of 2021. Please, please, uh, on, please on go back. Well, that, yeah, well, actually, yeah, we got to tell everyone to go back and listen because a lot of the background of some of the stories you referenced, we got into a lot more depth in part one and part two. There, yeah, there's, we'll, there's, a, we'll lot, have there's links, a lot of onions. We'll have links to the previous episodes below this episode. But uh, in the next episode, in part two of our 2021 <laughs> interview, <laughs> I want to talk a bit more about your successes and uh, and, you know, what went into those maybe uh, and get a little insight. Especially, I mean, I'm fascinated by someone that can have an idea and grow it into something so large. And, and you know, I would love to hear what went on between that initial spark of an idea and, and then, you know, having hundreds of, you know, different outlets be involved in what you're doing. So for now, thank you, John. 2020-D.com. 
Party Live Line, I believe, is the the current show. Check out his book, The Harmony of Parts. It's a really good book, The Harmony of Parts. You can get it on Amazon and Life Life on on the the V, V, which is uh, you can get. I think it's on Amazon. Um, Ben, back off your mic. (laughs) Yeah, you're very loud, Benny, as usual. (laughs) Um, Why you you don't have to leave Amazon? You can find it on Amazon. It's very good. Yes. Life on the V. We'll have it's very links. illuminating, actually, yeah. to how revolutionary. Because uh, honestly, you know, we didn't get into it as much. But I, I mean, I, I, John and I are friends. But I have such an immense respect for him because he is a revolutionary. And the the amount of people that you've reached, as far as you know, especially at a time on radio, was uh, people people's friends they, they turned it on and like every single week you know i remember growing up and hearing you on the radio every single weekend and it's it's crazy no okay. but it's one of those things where ben, you have a talent for starting a new I love episode it. as i just want to make sure this is like 67 <laughs> minutes as opposed to 62 minutes <laughs> we'll pick it up on we'll the next episode 2020 we'll see you <laughs> thank next you time. everybody <laughs> thank you thank you john Thank you, as always, for checking out this episode of 2020. Please visit 2020-d.com, like, and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out on future episodes. This week's throwback clip is from episode number 69, featuring Steve Wood, senior executive at Shelter Music Group. Check it out. Now, when you're dealing with the Hollywood vampires, (laughs) that is a whole different ballgame, and it is not for the faint of heart. How so? Why? Well, do you know who the Hollywood vampires are? Trevon? Yeah, yeah, I do. I do. Okay. So for our know. listeners so, that may not know, like my mom, it's it's Alice yeah. Cooper, Johnny Depp, and Joe Perry. So yeah. those guys well, are kind of the stars. Yeah, so star power. You have three principles, and the three principles must <laughs> have no favoritism. They all have to have exactly the same sweets. Um, it's private jets, okay? And it's um, on a level of detail, unlike any other tour. For example, a six-week tour of Europe with Johnny Depp, we never went through the front door of one hotel. It's all Elvis. We uh, blacked out vans, the jets on the tarmac in a private airfield, off the jet, into the van. We even had a tour bus whose only job was to meet the jet, pick them up, drop them at the hotel, and drive to the next country. Hey, this is Dewey Halpas, host of Peer Pleasure on the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Join me each week as I explore another long-form conversation with one of your favorite musicians, actors, comedians, or creatives. From Chino Moreno of the Deftones, John Gorley of Portugal, the man, to Fat Mike from No Effects, and Ian Mackay from Fugazi and Minor Threat, we go all over the map. From Fallout Boy to Slayer, peer pleasure has it all. Check us out now on Sound Talent Media.